Good evening, welcome to Geeking with Destination Venus. Reggie here again with another hour of geeky, newsy, viewsy type stuff. And let's start with the obvious thing. Not even play the science jingle for it. This has not been science for some time. Bezos finally did it. He's gone to space. As I record this on uh, the 21st of July, the Wednesday, it, he did it yesterday, uh, Tuesday the 20th of July. And he chose that day for a reason, because if you're a space geek, you will already know that that is the anniversary of Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landing on the moon in 1969. An actual achievement, which this was not in terms of science. I mean, in terms of what his company can do, this is an achievement. This is the first time his company has flown people into space in any way. And we'll come to what kind of way that might have been in a minute. But in terms of engineering, Alan Shepard did this on top of a Mercury Redstone rocket in 1961. Yuri Gagarin did something more impressive. He actually orbited the Earth in 1961. So, you know, a suborbital hop. It's one giant leap for a book-selling company. It's not a giant leap for mankind. But, you know, it would be churlish to not congratulate him on his company's achievement. But let's get down to what that achievement actually is. Did he actually go to space? Did Richard Branson actually go to space? Good questions, which deserve answers. So the key thing here is where does space actually start? Because it's all very well to say, I'm going to go to space. But where is that? At what point do you stop being flying in a craft on Earth, like an aeroplane, and at what point do you start being truly a craft that is in space? Well, it's not going to surprise anybody to learn that it's a bit of a grey area. And so maybe we need the jingle after all. Science. Because unlike the joyrides that Branson and Bezos have been on, this question actually is. Science. At what point does space start? At what point can you be said to truly be an astronaut or a cosmonaut or a taikonaut? Depends on your language, I suppose. Well, there are some internationally agreed standards here. It's just that there's a few of them. So let's have a look at what each of the billionaires did and then measure that against the international standards for being in space. Because much as I like to rag on them for their silly posturing, this question actually is an interesting one. So the threshold of space is generally agreed to be 100 kilometres above sea level. Um, now, obviously, sea level is subject to change and all that kind of thing. But, you know, that's the line they've drawn. It's pretty arbitrary. You are mostly outside, but not completely outside the atmosphere at 100 kilometres. If you looked up in the sky at 100 kilometres, it would be black. If you looked down, you would probably be able to make out the curvature of the Earth. Yeah, you, well, yeah, you would. You'd make out the curvature of the Earth. You wouldn't be able to see the whole globe, but you'd be able to see the curvature of the Earth. So, yeah, OK, spacey, I guess. Uh, several things you are not. You are not outside the influence of the Earth's gravity. And you are most definitely not in orbit. I'm not sure it would be possible to maintain an orbit at that altitude for very long. Because although you're outside most of the Earth's atmosphere, you would very definitely still be affected by it. It would slow you down. And if you slow down in space, you fall out of it. And the, the Earth's gravity thing... A lot of people think that you are weightless or you experience weightlessness, not the same thing, in space because you're outside the influence of the Earth's gravity. Nothing could be further from the truth. If you are weightless in space, it's because you are falling at the same speed as your craft. You're in orbit, therefore you are falling around the Earth and not towards it. There's a whole diagram I could show you. I'll probably put a link in the show notes to something on YouTube that demonstrates how this works and why it is. Um, but you're not as if you if you were outside of the influence of the Earth's gravity, you'd have a serious problem. 
even on the moon, you are not outside the influence of the Earth's gravity. That's what's keeping the moon in orbit. So yeah, 100 kilometers is the line that was set. That's what everybody basically agreed. Now, 100 kilometers is, give or take a little bit, 62 miles. Did Branson's flight achieve an altitude of 62 miles? Uh, a, a, a line we call the Kármán line. Uh, did Branson cross it? No, he did not. Uh, Virgin Galactic's craft reached an altitude of about 53 miles. So, um, no, didn't cross the Kármán line. And therefore, as far as I'm concerned, he did not go into space. It's still an achievement. He's still the guy who runs the company that built a craft that could go into space. It's space capable. Um, it's just it didn't do it while he was riding. So has, has Richard Branson been to space? No. No, he has very definitely not. He was a little bit too low. Did it feel to him like he was in space? Yeah. Yeah, it will have done. Uh, he, he will have experienced weightlessness. Um, he will have looked up and seen the black sky above him. He will have looked down and he would definitely, at 53 miles, be able to see the curvature of the Earth. But he's not been to space. Sorry, just hasn't. Bezos. Did Bezos cross the Kármán line? Do you know what? I'm surprising myself by saying this, but I'm very pleased to say that he did. He very definitely exceeded 100 kilometres in altitude. But Reg, you don't like Jeff Bezos. Why are you happy he beat our plucky Brit? Well, first of all, I don't like Richard Branson very much either. And second of all, I'm not pleased for Bezos. I am very pleased because, as I mentioned last week, Wally Funk was aboard the New Shepard spacecraft. Wally Funk deserved a trip to space. She has now finally achieved it. Uh, go back and listen to last week's episode if you can't remember who Wally Funk was. She is a remarkable woman. She is now officially the oldest person ever to fly in space. Uh, interesting that Bezos also took with him the youngest person ever to fly to space. Uh, the person who paid 28 million apparently gave their ticket away. And um, it was an 18 year old Dutch student who has become the youngest person ever to fly in space. So two firsts that are kind of cool, I guess. Um, so, yeah, huge congratulations to Wally Funk. Grudging admiration and thanks to Jeff Bezos for making her flight happen. Uh, I choose to think that this is Wally Funk's flight. Um, am I bitter and twisted about billionaires and Amazon? Yeah, yeah, I am. I freely admit it. And yes, as I admitted last week, I am a hypocrite. If I had Jeff Bezos's resources, I would use them in exactly the same way. Although I like to think I'd treat my workers better and pay my taxes. I like to think I'd do those things. So, you know, I guess you could test me by giving me billions of dollars and seeing what I'd do. In fact, do that. Let's do that scientific experiment. Give me billions of dollars and see what good works I do with them. No? Nobody? Oh, it was worth a try. It was worth a try. So, I'm going to leave the science there. Uh, it wasn't really much of a science segment. It was basically just telling you that the carbon line's at 100 kilometres. But now you know. Think about it. Space is actually closer than London from where you're sitting right now, if you're sitting more than 100 kilometres away from London, which most of you will be. So think about that. And now, time to take a look at our comics of the week. And we're going to start with a comic I've actually mentioned before, and that's Superman and the Authority. This is an interesting turn for Superman. It's the future, a little bit. And Superman, Kal-El, the last son of Krypton, is ageing and his powers are waning. He's not the power that he was in the world. And the time of the Justice League is over. Besides, sometimes you need something else to get things done. So he starts to put together a team, seeking out a guy called Manchester Black. Uh, who has psychic and telekinetic powers, and who is, by all measure, a bit of a villain. But Manchester Black has contacts that Superman does not, and there are people who will work with Manchester Black who wouldn't be all that impressed by Superman. Add to that, 
if Superman can take this guy and make him a hero, that'll prove something about truth, justice, and maybe even the American way. The whole thing is written by Grant Morrison, a guy who has written Superman before. Um, and in fact, not just has Grant written Superman before, but they have written the only version of Superman I've ever really enjoyed. So there's that. And Grant Morrison also wrote on The Authority back in the day, back when it was Jenny Sparks and Apollo, the Midnighter, um, Jack of Cities, the Engineer, all of those guys. And he really does understand the concept of what The Authority is. It's kind of like the Justice League, but kind of not, because the Authority does what needs to be done to get stuff done. It never bound itself up with rules and codes and stuff the way the Justice League always has. So it's kind of an amoral turn for Superman, which I think I quite enjoy. It's also beautifully illustrated. Uh, the artwork is so clean. And so beautifully good uh, by an artist called Mikhail Janin, who has previously worked on Batman, amongst other things. And I've always been impressed by his line, the, the way he uses expression. It's just great, great stuff. And staying with DC, although switching gears a little bit, we've also got Blue and Gold, issue one. Now, the gold of Blue and Gold is Booster Gold. And the blue of Blue and Gold is the Blue Beetle. You may not have heard of these guys. They were in the Justice League once, although, as Blue Beetle notes in this issue, they were in the Justice League once for a few months, back when he didn't have to be an A-lister to get in. And Blue Beetle, Booster Gold, they're not DC A-listers. Booster Gold, for example, is from the future. He's from a future where pretty much everyone's got superpowers. And where he comes from, Booster Gold is kind of mediocre. He's a bit of a joke. So he came back to the past where his powers would make him unusual and where he could be a hero because that's all he wants to be, really. He's a tremendous show off. He wants to be a hero. He wants people to love him. Unsurprisingly, having travelled back from the 25th century, he is big on social media and uh, crowdfunding. Because massive show-off. Of course he's on Instagram, except they don't call it that here because of copyright. He gets involved in a fight with some alien invaders who have already captured the Justice League. That's the team he's not powerful to be on anymore. And he gets himself into a bit of trouble. And so his robotic sidekick goes to fetch help in the shape of Ted Cord, the Blue Beetle. Now, Ted's had a tough time lately. He's well aware he's not the most powerful or clever or able of heroes. But he's not going to see a friend hanging out to dry, so he goes in to help. Stuff happens, they're heroes, it's the start of a new limited series. And you know what? It's just good fun. One of the things you can do with characters that aren't so well-known, that aren't A-listers, is you can play around with them a little bit. And Booster Gold's always been a bit of fun. Blue Beetle's always been kind of a bit of fun. Together, they make a great team. And this story is told with a bit of lightness of touch and a bit of deftness that you just don't often get with the big heroes. So, yeah, it's a nice bit. Do you know what? Genuinely, this is the comics equivalent of the kind of light thriller you take to the beach. It's, it's a good summer read. And I can't recommend it highly enough. Really can't. It's just, it's just dumb fun. And sometimes you need that. And finally, in this section, because it can't all be good fun, something a little bit darker. Dark Blood. In point of fact, issue one out this week. Now, this is quite a powerful 
story. We're in Alabama. It's 1955. Avery Aldridge is just a regular guy. He's black. Yes, which in 1955 in Alabama can be a problem. But he's also a decorated veteran of the Second World War. He's a family man. He puts food on the table for his wife and daughter. But he's carrying some baggage from the past. And it's the kind of baggage that, that has the, the habit of coming back to haunt you. And Avery begins to discover that he's actually not as ordinary as he thought he was. And after a bit of a run-in with a little bit of trouble, some abilities start to awaken within him. And Avery discovers he's actually much, much more powerful than he could ever have thought possible. But he's a very powerful man now, or a man with great power at least, in a time and a place that doesn't want people like him to have any kind of power. And that could be a problem. This is a very bold story. Um, it's blending several genres at once, which is always a good thing to do. It's very evocative. It's very powerful. Um, written by uh, Latoya Morgan, uh, who has written on uh, for TV and things like The Walking Dead. Um, and with some fantastic art. Now, the art really is striking. Um, by an artist called Walt Barner, who, who's, whose work I have not seen before, I don't think. Uh, but it really does fit the tone of this story. It's another one of those show, stories that shows you just how versatile comics can be. That we have something like Superman the Authority, Blue and Gold, and then this. The, the, the range of capability for storytelling that comics have is truly amazing. And this is the kind of book that illustrates that. Again, as with all the things I bring to this section of the show, cannot recommend it highly enough. It is fabulous. Right then, time to hear from somebody that isn't just me. Let's get back to our discussion with Alice about The Lord of the Rings. We left it somewhat abruptly last week, discussing what influence Tolkien might have taken from his experience of two world wars. Before the First World War, wars were fought by armies against other armies on battlefields. And mm -hmm. yes, it was carnage and people died and it was brutal and bloody and horrible, but everybody was there on kind of equal terms. It was, I've got, we've got swords, they've got swords. We've got lances, they've got lances. We've got cavalry, they've got cavalry. You kind of fought until one side had won and then that was it. And the whole thing was over in an afternoon. Mm -hmm. It was something that it was possible to romanticise. You know, the dashing, mm. the dashing soldier on his, on his charger with his red coat and his sword flashing in the sunlight. After the First World War, war wasn't like that anymore. War was a mechanised industrial process that involved everybody. There were no, no. no clear-cut battlefields. Yeah. Um, civilians were not... Mm -hmm out of it or protected in any way at all. In fact, civilians might prove to be useful targets. Battles could go on for months. Mm -hmm. It became a race to see who could build the biggest, most horrible weapon that nobody else had. And yeah. I think Tolkien saw that and, and hated uh, it. Yeah, and I think you raised a really good point when you said that before then, wars were romanticised in a way, and you can see that even going back to the Greeks. Mm. The war of um, between the Greeks and Troy being one example. Whereas if you look at any of the literature, hell, even some of the poetry that came out of World War One, it did not romanticise it one bit. No, I mean... Even... It was all about the loss of in innocence. Look at Wilfred Owen's poetry. Mm. Um, well, the, is it, it Siegfried? 
Jessica Soon, Soon, Soon. Um, is that I, I said his name right? Yeah, you did. Um, you have the English teacher seal of approval. You know, any of the poets, any of the uh, is all did Auden write about it? Auden didn't. Auden avoided the First World War, uh, but but yeah, if, even, he couldn't avoid World War Two though, could he? Even Kipling, mm, who was pro-war, very pro-war. So pro-war, he actually got the got the rules bent so that his son could go could join the army because his son was medically unfit. But until his son died, that's when he completely changed. Um, yeah, so even even Kipling, who you would expect to have written the uh, glory of glory for the glory of the empire style stuff, didn't. Kipling's Kipling's war poetry is heartbreaking. Um, mm. The only the only poem I can think of that even slightly begins to romanticise the First World War is Rupert Brooke. Um, if I should die in a, if I should die, think only this of me. There will be a corner of a foreign field that will be forever England. I've probably horribly misquoted that, but he wrote that on the boat on the way to France at the very beginning of the war, and he died before seeing combat. Mm. You know, he didn't. Nobody who saw the First World War romanticised it, and I think. All... Yeah, and I think it wasn't just the men who went to war that lost their innocence. I think the world, the world lost its innocence. I think that's probably after World War One. Yeah, in a way that we we didn't. With World War Two, well, World War Two that was that that was after the facts. I mean, I suppose arguably with World War One that was the case, but I think it was well in the midst of World War One mm-hmm. when people changed. But it was only in the aftermath of World War Two when people realised the true extent of the horrors mm. of Nazism. Yeah, I think that experience of the First World War perhaps is an influence on. First of all, the fact that although there are many romantic characters in this story, I mean, Aragorn is a classically romantic figure. You know, much is made of um, the the staggering beauty of, of Galadriel, mm-hmm. and the grace of the elves and all that. So th- there was lots of, roman- lots of romantic characters, lots of romantic tropes in this story. But the war itself is not romanticised. No. You know, I mean, we have things like the Battle of Helm's Deep and... Um, the battle for Gondor. These are brutal, violent things, and we see, mm. we see individual acts of brutality committed by the orcs, for instance. Yeah. In, in a way, so look, look, war is horrible. People do terrible things in war, kind of thing. And I think that that comes from Tolkien's experience of the First World War, as does I think mm. the the anti yeah. the anti industrial, anti mechanization theme that runs through. Lord of the Rings as well. Um, yeah, you know the Shire is 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 this idealised rural idyll where mm. you know good stout people, good honest people farm the land with their with their hands and the 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 sweat of their brow and the power of their backs, and they have horses and carts and and it's it feels very British, doesn't it? It's very, it's not even British. It's very Middle English. It's very home counties. <laughs> Yeah, um, it's. I was going to say it very much uh, represents the pastoral and the yeah. innocent. I think. And then, you, then we get the elves, who are the ultimate good guys, the ultimate in beauty and grace and wisdom, and they live in trees. You know that they're, they're not. It's it's Mordor. They almost represent the cultured folk, don't yeah. they? It's it's Mordor that build and, <laughs> and Sauron who build engines and 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 machines. Everybody else, you know, I mean, the elves have got all of this wisdom and power and magic. They still fight with swords, whereas mm. you just know that Saruman would have been working on a machine gun. You know, it's it's this idea that technology is bad. Brutal, horrible people have technology. Mm. The wise and the beautiful have simple things. And and I think that that attitude comes from Tolkien's dislike of in of industrialization because of its mm. the first world war yeah i was going to say when we were talking about what saruman or sauron represent i don't think they represent specific figures they represent the mechanism the evil mm. mechanisms of war the machinery of war and you, you see that in like the photos that they took of no man's land and how it completely destroyed the natural world Mm. And you, and I think that is definitely seen in the two towers when 
they start to destroy the wood. Yes. And then Saruman learns the hard way um, when you decide trees. Yes. Actually, that's a, that's a really good illustration of that, actually. That, yeah, in, in, in Middle-earth, the trees fight back. And the, the, the Ents attack on Isengard, I think, is Tolkien saying, you, you can't fight nature. Nature will always win. I, I said I, I hadn't thought of it in that way before, but I think that's that's a really nice illustration of that attitude. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think we should probably address some of the more problematic aspects of the story. Um, I I personally don't think they're as problematic as a lot of people would like to make out, but we do sort of need to address them. Um, if people were listening to the show last week, I, I mentioned a couple of them. I'm very interested to get your take as as somebody who's younger than me, um, because attitudes change through generations. Um, generally, they get more progressive. There is an issue with race in this story. Yes, <laughs> um, it, it's it's difficult to to read it and watch the. But actually, it's particularly striking, I think, in the films. Uh, they're difficult to watch, even twenty years later, without sort of having the thought in the back of your hind brain hang on a minute all the good guys have got really pale skin and most of them are blonde and all of the bad guys have got quite dark skin even the human ones and oh that's a bit that's a bit not likey and it does i think feel weird i i personally i think i know what tolkien was doing (laughs) but i'm interested to see how how you how teenaged you reacted to it when you first came across that? Um, I didn't really pick up on that mm-hmm. when I was young. I just saw them as the bad guys. I never really, well, beyond them being orcs and them being elves and them being men and them being hobbits, I really didn't see anything beyond that in terms of race. And I do think even now I don't really see I don't think Peter Jackson was really trying to align orcs with a certain race in our world. Oh, I, I, or absolutely, ethnicity. I, absolutely, I absolutely don't think he was. In fact, I don't um, know. I, I think, think that's more on J.R. Tolkien because it's very clear that J.R. Tolkien, I think, because J, J, as I'm sure as you know, um, the orcs are very much associated with certain ethnicity or race um, in the yes. book. Um, I believe it. so. I think that was more uh, obvious in the books, I think, than the films. I think so. I, I, th- I think the the reason it sticks out at me now. I mean, I will be perfectly honest. The first time I read Lord of the Rings, this did not occur to me. I think I probably did think of, think about it when I saw the particularly. Actually, it's, I'm coming back to Return of the King again with the criticism. I particularly noticed it in Return of the King. It is worth pointing out that at that time I was a relatively new to it English teacher who also taught media. And so I was sort of programmed to look for things like that. So possibly they would have gone over, you know, most people wouldn't have thought twice about it. But I think there are two things. The books do it all the time and the the movies do it a little bit. But they they do refer to people as coming, to characters, as coming from particular, heavy air quotes, races. When in fact what they mean is species. Elves are not a race. Mm-hmm. Men are not a race. They are a species yeah. in this world. Orcs are a species in this world, but they're referred to as races. I think. That... Yeah, it's uh, it's the end. the The age of men is over, or the race yeah. of men is over. I think. I think that's probably yeah. actually. An I think artifact. I know what you're getting at. I think that's probably an artifact, actually, of the way language was used when Tolkien was writing. But that's mm. one thing. I think, and with. With modern sensibilities, obviously, we we react immediately to the word race. So, in a in a way, yeah. in the fifties, people didn't. So, there's that. But also, and this is particularly on the film for me, the humans, the men who come to the to 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 fight for Sauron at the end of the Return of the King. I don't have the book in front of me, and I'm not going to go and look, yeah. look for the quote now. I made I may drop a quote to the show notes just to make a point they are described i mean tolkien is not so crass as to say oh they look a bit indian um (laughs) or oh they look a bit arabic he's not but but they are Mm. described in ways that make you think that's you know they were probably they're a darker skinned people than the people of of gondor 
and they're alive. I think, unfortunately. Peter, uh, I, I actually can probably forgive Tolkien for that, for all sorts of contextual reasons. But Peter Jackson does it as well. The, the, the men who ride the oilifants are presented as kind of sort of Arabic, Persian, Middle Eastern kind of dress. Mm. And given that, given when these films came out and what was going on in the world at the time, I genuinely think that was a, a misstep. I don't think it was deliberate. I really don't. Yeah. In some ways that makes it worse because it means nobody was thinking about it. But genuinely, genuinely, my first reaction watching the battle for Gondor as the guys and the Oliphants turned up, dressed in the way they were, looking the way they, they were, made up the way they were, made me think, oh, oh, that's a bit on the nose, Peter. And I don't know, I, 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 it, raises, it raised questions for me, I think. I don't know, am I just being massively woke and, like, you know, woke English teacher nonsense here, or, or, or do, you, do you see a, a thing? Return of the King is a long way from being the worst offender in film here. There are a couple of Indian uh, movies, uh, fantasy movies, that are even more explicit about people with particular shades of skin being worse than other people. Um, yeah. But it, it is just, in Return of the King, it, it really is quite marked that the humans, the men, who fight on the side of good, uh, are all quite pale. And the humans who fight on the side of evil are quite dark. And in, a, as I, in the books, it's an easy thing to let slide. Because for a start, Tolkien is using light and dark as symbols here. I doubt very much that Tolkien was thinking of, of, of in, in a racial way. It, it's, it's very good, like, white equals good, black equals bad in, in stories has always been a thing and it's not that's not about race that's yeah. about that's about light and darkness um but i think in the context of making a movie in the late 90s which i presume is when these designs were made because filming this thing was quite a long process i do think making the only darker skinned humans in the entire thing the bad guys was careless go as far as that to the point that you absolutely wouldn't do it now. I think if Peter Jackson was to make Return of the King now, he absolutely wouldn't do that. Um, and I think we. Um, no, I, I don't think he would. No, and I, I wouldn't go as far as to say that was racist. Perhaps careless, but again, I, I kind of because the thing is, is that in the books, J.R. Tolkien does actually, like I said, there are some. There's plenty of people who have picked up on the fact that the orcs are associated or the descriptions resemble those of of um descriptions that were made of i think it was mongolians i think yeah although was that associated i can't remember so yeah he, he has lots of lots of things to say about the shape of, of orcs eyes and um cheekbones and and that kind of mm. thing. yes so i mm. Though I would argue that that is a certainly more uh, problematic uh, <laughs> um, example of um, racism between the books and the film. I think, actually, Oops. I, 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 we should acknowledge, as we have this conversation about this, that we are two white folks sitting here talking about this. I would be really interested to hear, so listeners, info at destinationvenus.co.uk, um, I would be genuinely interested to hear the perspective of people from ethnicities other than ours, because <laughs> you know we we do not experience racism. We 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 can see it, but we don't experience it. So maybe we're both overreacting. Mm -hmm. Maybe actually we're both being tremendously blasé about something that was deeply hurtful to a lot of people. I actually don't know because I've never spoken to somebody of colour about it. But yeah, I mean, I would agree with you. I don't think that there's anything deliberate and uh, anything deliberately racist in either the books or the books. I do see your point. I do see your um, point. It's just that it's just that as somebody who is trained to look for this stuff, I tell you, teaching media studies for any length of time messes with the way you consume media. It really does. Um, but I have been trained to look for this stuff and I spotted that. And I really, I, and it, 
I, I, I think I spotted it because it was so jarring because it didn't fit with the ethos of the, the narrative itself, if that makes sense. So I don't think it was the sort of casual racism that you might have got in something made in the 70s, for instance. And yes, the man who would be king, I'm looking directly at you. Uh, have you seen The Man Who Would Be King? Mm-hmm. It's based on a it's it's uh, Michael Caine and somebody else famous made in the 70s. It's based on a book by Rudyard Kipling. And it's possibly one of the most racist things I've ever seen. <laughs> just just casually racist. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's worth watching. Because I was going to say, though, that um, casual you can still see your fair share of casual racism in film today. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and indeed, in most media. Um, but it's, it's, it's largely accidental. It's largely people not doing it on purpose. It's largely accidental uh, people doing things through ignorance. Not that that's, mm. any, not that that's any excuse. We, we, may no. have, we may have gone off on a bit of a tangent. <laughs> but no, I, I like I said, I see your point. But I think, as I said, it's not the most egregious um, example of racism in film. Um, it's certainly not the most overt um, example or racist. Yeah, I mean, I, I, example of racism within the Lord of the Rings between the books and the films. I I absolutely take that point. So having having tackled race, shall we go to something completely <laughs> not controversial at all? Let's talk about the way gender is is portrayed in the films and in the books, because there's a difference. Yeah, um, actually, that's... mm, Well, it's funny that you say that, because somebody on Twitter was saying, oh, I've never seen um, The Lord of the Rings because there's not many women in it. And I said, well, there's two very badass characters in the film. Well, you know, three. There's Galadriel, there's Arwen, and there's Eowyn. Hmm. Um, and I suppose Rosie is she. Well, she's not a badass, but she's still quite a noticeable character. And yeah. I, but after that, I don't feel the need to be an equal amount of female characters to male characters. I think certainly, again, in the um, in, in the context because I time, don't. Well, and well, also, and in, in the context of the time that Tolkien was writing, he's writing about a war in Tolkien's world. Women did not fight in wars. Women were not soldiers in Tolkien's world. So, yeah, if you're going to write a story about soldiers and you're J.R.R. Tolkien, ain't going to be a lot of female characters. In the same way, there aren't very many in the film 1917 either, for the same reason. But just to just to, to come back, I, I'm playing devil's advocate slightly, but just to come back at you a little bit. Yes, there's Gladriel. Yes, there's Arwen. Yes, there's Eowyn. But then we've got Rosie, who if we're honest, only really exists to be Sam's girlfriend. And in the books, pretty much the only other female character that gets any lines is the woman who works for the apothecary in Gondor, uh, who is portrayed as a massive gossip. (laughs) Um, So five female characters tops, two of whom have very few lines, and one of whom is a massive stereotype. I, I don't think the books serve women particularly well. I think as a result of that, the films have limited opportunity as far as positive portrayals of women go. And I actually think, given the limitations of the source material, the films do a very good job. But I'm a 50-year-old man saying this, so I'm actually going to leave that judgment up to you because... I'm sure there are some people who think that, oh, I wish, you know, oh, there should have been more female characters in it. I don't think the number of female characters is an important thing to me. It's more to do with how well fleshed out those characters are. Quality what are their motivations? Quality. Yeah. And actually, I've got something to say about a particular character. Um, Eowyn and how people back in the day used to talk about her mm-hmm. now this was mainly something coming from a lot of girls a lot of girls hated Eowyn solely for the fact that she was going after Aragorn when he belongs to Arwen because this was and she was like oh she's trying so hard to be a badass no she's not trying hard to be a badass she is a badass 
And the thing is, is that Arwen and Eowyn would probably be really good friends. Without like question. they, you know, they would probably ride into battle with it, you know, mm. as sisters in arms. So I never really understood looking back um, why they were always why viewers, particularly female viewers, were always pitting them against women. I mean, I know they were in the middle of a love love triangle. I have to say, but it was just so ridiculous to me. I have to say, and I, I'm almost going to apologise in advance for the stereotype, um, except it's a stereotype that I have observed to be correct. So, um, speaking as somebody who's never been a teenage girl. The um, the idea that teenage girls would not like Eowyn because she was going after somebody else's boyfriend strikes me as very much year nine girl mentality. Year yeah, nine, absolutely. Year, it's year nine girl morality. You don't go after somebody else's bloke. Um, and Even though these are fictional I, characters at the I end of the bloody day. It doesn't matter. If anything, it's a tribute to the quality of the storytelling that the characters felt real enough for people yeah. to have that reaction to. But I just never really understood the visceral against Eowyn because she's actually one of my favourite characters now. I like her too. But... I actually like her a lot more than... than Certainly, if we're talking about the books, I, I think I prefer Eowyn to Arwen quite a lot. Because... Mm. It, one of the one of my favourite alterations between the book and the film is what they did in the film to the character of Arwen. In the books, she's quite passive. She's quite a fairy tale princess kind of character, um, known for her beauty and clearly has the heart of Aragorn, um, and will make this great sacrifice of becoming mortal in order to be with him and all of that. But all of the badass stuff that Arwen does in the film. Is done by other people in the books. So the film beefs it's up. It's character. She, she, the film really beefs up Arwen's character, gives her more agency, um, makes her more important, um, makes her more than just the prize that Aragorn gets at the end. Mm. Well, she um, chooses her destiny rather than it being yes. thrust upon her. Yeah. Uh, and so I really like what the books did with that. Now, again, I, I'm I'm not particularly critical of Tolkien for creating Arwen in the way that he did, um, because Arwen in the books fits the profile of your archetypal folklore princess. Yeah, and that's the vibe he was going for. So you know, I can't I can't fault that, mm. uh, and I, I I don't criticize. That. But again, whereas Arwen was your atypical shield maid, and in fact, that's what she's referred to in the film. You were a shield maiden of Rohan. Yes. And although she's... Eowyn is exceptional in the books and the films in that none of the other women of Rohan ride out in that way. No mm. one seems that surprised that she did in the <laughs> books or in the film. It's like, oh, okay, that's not what most people do, but it's not completely outrageous that a woman would... Oh, actually, would in the... Um... In Return of the King, um, Aylma, uh makes the... So there is actually a lot... I don't, I don't know whether this is mainly in the extended version, where he basically says, you have no place on the battlefield any more than he, you know, mm. he does, referring to Mary. So I think there is one moment where he does actually say... And I don't know whether he's saying that as her brother, you know, I don't want you in danger, or whether he is saying that as a mantle. I think I think he's saying that as a brother to a sister. And mm. more than that, I think he's saying that as a trained soldier to a to an untrained civilian. Mm. Because I've never been a soldier either. One of the many things I've <laughs> never been a teenage girl, never been a soldier. Um, but I do know some soldiers. But I know what you mean. Like you know, if unless you've trained in combat, yeah, you I, shouldn't really be on the battlefield. I, I do know some soldiers, and one of the things that scares the hell out of them more than anything else is the help of an enthusiastic amateur, because or weaponry being in the hands of somebody who does yeah, not have yes, the know how thing, to operate. The last thing you want as a soldier is somebody anywhere near you with a weapon they're not trained to use. Mm. Um, because that person is probably going to get you killed, and I yeah. think I think there's I think that's the spirit that yeah um, Amor says you have no place on this battlefield any more than him, and I think it's 
I think the any more than him is the important bit there. It's that it's not because she's a girl. Mary's got no Mary's got no place on this battlefield either because he doesn't know what he's doing, um, mm. and he's too little. You know, he's he's not he's not fit for purpose. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a reason there's a height requirement oh. to join the guards. Yeah, yeah. Um, that actually reminds me of a wonderful um, scene between Mary and Eowyn, where he says, "I know I'm not going to save Middle Earth, but if I can do anything to help my friends, I will." Yeah, and actually, that's a theme we haven't touched on, which is one of the more important themes in the story. I would have said, and that—that that is the theme of friendship, friendship and camaraderie, and, and fellowship. Yeah, it's—it's. It's, um, there's the 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 com- the, the exchange between um, Gimli and Legolas, uh, just as they're about to face the the hordes of Mordor. Um, yeah, Gimli says, "I never thought I'd die next to a dwarf." Ne- sorry, never thought I'd. Die how about next- side by side with a friend? Never thought I'd die next to an elf. And how about with a how about with a friend? I I could do that. You know, it's and um, and that and that is all because well, throughout the in the films, um, the reason why dwarves and elves are at odds with each other is because of this. Um, the elves have always kind of looked down on. The, I, I know that there is some. Um, historical reason within the world of Middle Earth, yeah, why elves and dwarves don't like each other. Well, I think it's because um, they different worlds. They're, they're culturally. Well, isn't it also something? Yeah, um, but I do. Isn't that? Like I said, I'm trying to remember in my data bank because I'm sure I read this somewhere that it was something to do with um, like the elves are tricked the dwarves or something, something there's, or there's something this is, like that. Yeah. There's some historical like reason why the dwarves hate the elves so much, but, but I think it is, as you say, mainly due to um, cultural think, differences. I, I I think perhaps we also should have a think about the relationship between Frodo and Sam. Okay, we're going to leave that there because. It's a good place to stop, believe me. We're about to get into a whole thing, which we'll save for next week. Quick aside, um, I'm re-recording this link uh, while I'm doing the editing of the show this week. And I'm editing the show in the middle of a busy public park in Bradford. Don't ask me why. It's a whole thing. Um, So apologies for background noise and general weirdness. Uh, So anyway, we're going to leave that there. Alice will be rejoining us next week and we will finish that conversation then. But now I'm going to go back to the thing I recorded a bit ago. Hang on. Now, I know we've already had the segment, but and this this never happens, but there is some breaking news, not as I record the show, but as I'm actually in final edit. So I, I I could probably go and shoehorn this back into the, the, the segment you've already heard, but it would be messy. And so I'm just being honest and showing you how the sausage is made, because we have got some breaking news about. Science. And of course, I get to use that jingle again. So, you know, everyone's a winner. Now, I say this is breaking news. It's breaking news to me. Apparently, this broke a couple of days ago as I edit this on Thursday, the 22nd of July. But I've literally only just heard about it. There was a piece on the radio and it's just the best news. Hubble's back, folks. Hubble is back. I reported a couple of weeks ago that the best telescope currently ever built by people was out of action. And, you know. It's at the end of its service life now. It's a, it's an old bit of kit. It's 30 years old and more. But they were going to try and keep it going for as long as they could. And there was even talk just a month or two ago that Hubble might actually outlive its replacement because uh, the James Webb Space Telescope, which has not yet launched, it's so behind schedule, it's ridiculous, that the James Webb Space Telescope is cryogenically fuel, uh, cooled and because of that, eventually it'll run out of coolant and stop working. Whereas Hubble, in theory, can just keep going. 
And almost immediately after people had started to consider that at NASA, it broke. Now, it's a simple computer fault, but it's a simple computer fault in a weird orbit that we currently can't get people to. So it's potentially catastrophic. And NASA engineers have been scratching their heads trying to figure out how you get a 1980s bit of hardware fixed when you are literally thousands of miles away from it. Well, they've managed it. And it was a truly heroic effort. It involved getting people back who worked on building the instrument in the 1980s in the first place, pulling people out of retirement, looking through by hand the original paperwork, figuring stuff out that had been forgotten for maybe 40 years to try and get a fix together. And they did it. They actually did it. They looked at all the bits of, of hardware that could be causing the problem, switching them to backup modules and stuff. Um, and eventually, they nailed it. There was some hardcore marathon coding involved. But finally, on July the 15th, so about a week ago, uh, they were able to bring everything back up to operational status. Uh, there's a very good article on the NASA website about the nuts and bolts of what they did. Links to that in the show notes. And it's just, to me, just an incredibly impressive achievement. This is a 31-year-old. Well, it's, more, it's older than 31 years old. It's been in space for 31 years. But it's you know, older than that. Most of the components were made in the early to, to mid-80s. So there's there's kit on board this thing that's 40 years old. Now, I don't know if you had a computer 40 years ago, but if you did, you know how primitive they were. That's what NASA engineers have been working with. It's truly impressive. And it sort of tells you something about NASA. It's an organisation that just gets the job done. And you got to admire that. So... Congratulations to everybody involved, and it's so good to see Hubble producing images and science and data again. Really good news. So there you have it. And yes, that segment you just heard was recorded sitting at my dining room table in my house this morning, and the segment you're listening to now is me replacing some lost audio while sitting in a very busy public square in a very sunny Bradford. Uh, I'm here because I have work here. So anyway, that's just about it for now. We don't have a lot more to add. Uh, just a couple of things to plug. So I've mentioned this before. I mentioned it last week. I'm going to keep mentioning it. Free Comic Book Day is on Saturday the 14th of August. It's at participating comic book stores across North America and the UK. So if you can't get to Destis, I'm sure there'll be a comic store near you that could help. Basically, there's no catch. All you've got to do is uh, pitch yourself up at any comic shop that's participating and help yourself to some lovely, free, specially produced comics. It's a great day. It's a great way of finding out if there's stuff out there that you're not currently reading that you'd actually really rather enjoy. So check that out. That's Saturday, the 14th of August. Uh, so that's a couple of weeks' time. Uh, if you listen to this on the day it goes out, I'd also like to plug a Thought Bubble event that is currently taking place in Leeds. Uh, go to the thoughtbubblefestival.co.uk website for full details on this. Basically, they've sort of nicked my idea but made it better. So well done, guys. This is an art trail around Leeds. Now, as you know, I did an art trail around Harrogate in 2019, uh, planning to do it again in 2021. They've got one better than me, though, because they're better organised and they have a bigger budget and, and this is crucial, much more talent. So what they've done is they've put together a trail that tells a story written by uh, the 
Festival Sabrina, to the Lyset, uh, featuring some of her art, and I think there are other artists involved as well. And it's looking fantastic. It really does look like I'm very impressed with the examples that I've seen. Uh, so if you find yourselves in Leeds, I, I, I think this thing's running just until the end of football now, so you've got plenty of time. If you find yourself in Leeds, have a look on the website, find out where everything is, and have a little wander around and see what you think. And while we're on the subject of Comic-Cons, I will just very quickly let you know that San Diego Comic-Con at home is happening again this year. If I was recording this at home, I would have the internet available to me, and I'd be able to look up exactly when it is and tell you that. Since I'm sitting in a square in the middle of Bradford, and I don't have access to the internet from here, I'm just going to tell you that it's happening, and you need to look up when. If you just Google SDCC at home and see what's going on and when it's going on. Last year's event was great. This year's event will have learned from last year's event and will, I think, probably therefore go up a little bit more smoothly than last year's did. It is difficult putting together a massive online meeting like this, but it may well be the only chance you ever get to attend the SDCC. And the San Diego Comic-Con is the daddy of them all. It's not what it was, it's a shadow of its former self, they tell me, but it's still the big daddy, and, you know, I'm not going to San Diego anytime soon, and I suspect most of you aren't either. So, this is your chance. It's online, and it's free. So, have a look, see what's going on, check it out. And that really pretty much is it for this week. Oh, actually, no. I will just take a second just to plug the fact that Black Widow is still out in theatres. We've waited for this movie for so darned long. It would be a shame to miss it on the big screen. You can watch it on Disney+, Plus. you may have a big-ish screen yourself, but honestly, go see it in the cinema. They could really do with getting some bums on seats. It's been a long time locked down for them. And uh, if you want your cinema to survive, you've got to go and visit it. And before we go, one last very quick recommendation. Uh, it's a fiction podcast called After the Revolution by Robert Evans. Now, I've mentioned Robert Evans on various versions of the show before. Uh, he's a journalist. He's more geek adjacent than geeky, but he's quite a talented guy, quite a talented writer. And he's written a novel set after the next American Civil War, when things have gone very bad. The United States have broken up into several other nations. There's a, a Christian fundamentalist nation called God's Kingdom. There's the, uh, a Texan sort of republic. There's the AMFED or the American Federation. And a lot of this is based on research he did for a, a series he did called It Could Happen Here, which looked at fascism and right-wing extremism in America. And it's just really entertaining. A great dystopian sci-fi fix, and I heartily, heartily recommend it. Uh, just search for uh, After the Revolution on Google, and you'll find it. As I've said, I'm away from home, and I don't have access to the internet. Uh, I will obviously put links in the show notes when I get back. Okay, that's about it. We will be back next week with uh, more discussion of Tolkien, uh, more geeky news, views, and stuff, some more comics recommendations and whatnot. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm hoping we've got a really good show lined up for you next week. So uh, do, please, watch this space. All that remains is for me to remind you that Geeking with Destination Venus is brought to you by Destination Venus, under the stairs of the Everyman Cinema in Harrogate. It is a copyright production of Venus Rising Media, and it's engineered by me, Reggie Rigby, who is doing his best. Somebody appears to be playing the bagpipes on the other side of the square. I'm not even kidding. Why are they playing bagpipes in Bradford? Bradpipes, I suppose they could be. Ha. Anyway. I guess all that's left for me to do is wish you an excellent week. I hope you have time and space to pursue all of your geeky activities and to relax and chill in what I hope will be more sunshine. It's a glorious sunny day where I am at the moment. Uh, it's quite nice to be outside, although the background noise is annoying. Reference. Bagpipes. I hope it engineered those out, but never mind. Anyway, we'll see you soon. Be kind to you yourselves, everybody. Be kind to everybody else. We'll see you back here next week for the next time we go geeking.